90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, well, I'm back from the land of the flu-like illness. <laughs> I would say to to the land of the living, but I don't think I'm quite there yet. <laughs> so you know, we I haven't missed the show in forever. I know, and I'm really sad. We've only missed like one because of sickness, too, right? So yeah, it it knocked me flat. Like I did not go to work for a week, which never happens, and I didn't think I woke up for like 36 hours straight. So yeah, yes, you, you called me one night to say I think we can record tomorrow. <laughs> and <it's>, no, <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was terrible. So um, yeah, I'm I'm doing better. It's good. So I'm sorry for anyone else that's super sick. Hopefully you're sitting in bed listening to our back episodes, if that's where you are. <laughs> Actually got an email from a listener earlier this week who's going through the entire back catalog and was reminding me of some things from episode two, as painful as that was oh, to go my back goodness. and listen to. <laughs> I don't even want to think about how bad that was yeah. <laughs> back when we used to uh, rehearse and stuff. That was, was pretty intense back then. Oh yeah. Well, so <laughs> this afternoon, the day we're recording this uh, was the day of the SpaceX Falcon heavy launch, which was awesome. <laughs> and, and I didn't see it because I'm still climbing out from my mound of, you know, a week's worth of work I haven't done. So I'm assuming you watched it live. Oh, I did. And in addition to the fact that a Tesla Roadster with a dummy in a spacesuit blaring yeah. Space Odyssey was <laughs> launched into orbit, uh, it was really great because on the screen in the Tesla Roadster, it said, don't panic. So <gasps> thanks, SpaceX, for the shout out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I, we'll totally happening. take... Yeah, we'll totally take uh, credit for that, right? <laughs> oh, totally. As it was happening, I was taking a screenshot of it, getting ready to put it on Twitter, and one of our listeners beat me to it. So, Oh, was, nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, excellent. That was great. But before we keep our guest waiting any longer, we're really excited to be talking to Dr. Casey Adderhold about the recent earthquake in Alaska and what life is like post-PhD at IRIS. Hi, Casey. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so, Casey, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into geophysics and some of your background? Um, sure. Yeah, I guess it goes back um, quite a ways because I was um, born and raised in Homer, Alaska, uh, which, as we'll get into later, is is on a plate boundary. And so we've hosted plenty of earthquakes. I grew up you know, running underneath the table as a kid um, when things started shaking. So um, I got introduced to geophysics pretty early. That is excellent. Um, I will say that this is beside the point. So sorry, John, but I follow all these like adventure people that used to live in Homer, Alaska. So I'm super obsessed with Alaska. And <laughs> I would just talk to you about that the whole time, Casey, but I think John's going to make us talk about other stuff. <laughs> That's fine. We have a lot of fun outdoorsy people up there. So yeah, we could probably fill up a full hour with that. <laughs> Excellent. We'll have you back for that. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> yes, and we know we have several listeners in Homer, so hi to those folks yeah. as well. <laughs> hi, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up around uh, 
earthquakes and that got you interested in geophysics. Is that the the path that you knew you wanted to take going into college as an undergraduate? Uh, certainly not. I actually got really into biology um, in high school. We also have plenty of animals and interesting things going on for that. And so then I went to undergrad and I got sidetracked again into computer science. And I did that actually as my um, undergraduate degree. Um, then finally, at the end of undergrad, I got back into um, sort of the, you know, hard rock, tangible sort of thing um, when I applied to grad school. And that is actually when I got into um, earthquake seismology, which is what I did my PhD in. So how do you go from computer science to rocks? Yeah. I mean, I could ask John this too, but I'm more interested in, you know, <laughs> what somebody else has to say as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a traditional path, but it was a much easier transition than you might think. Um, you know, a lot of the work that I do at IRIS is all done on a computer. Um, our data comes in uh, streaming from all around the world and uh, the analysis that we do in seismology is often um, computer-based. And so, you know, my advisor, Rachel Abercrombie, said, you know, when I applied to her program that as long as I knew how to program, you know, computer, do, do the computer programming side of things, that she would teach me anything I needed to know about earthquakes. So, <laughs> awesome. yeah, so it worked out pretty well. So you mentioned at, at IRIS, and could you describe a little bit about what IRIS is and what they do and what you do there for our listeners that might not be familiar with them? Sure, yeah. IRIS, um, as you know, we love our acronyms. IRIS stands for Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology. So we're a research, research consortium um, of over 130 universities across the United States. And we sort of fall into three branches. We have our education and outreach. We have our data management services um, in Seattle. And we have um, our instrumentation, which is where the group that I'm in. Um, so we do things like help researchers install seismic equipment um, in their own experiments. And we also have our own stations that we run um, for longer term um, as part of various projects. So what I do at IRIS is largely in data management and data QA, QC, looking at the data that's coming in and making sure it makes sense, um, helping to explain it to, to other people who are planning on using the data. Um, so that's primarily what I do, which computer science really comes in, um, in very handy for, for that kind of work. So Iris are the people when we had our big earthquake here in Oklahoma, you know, the seismologist here called and said, we need to deploy all these seismometers and Iris sent us a whole bunch, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of what you guys are in the business of doing too, is helping researchers when stuff like this happens, right? Exactly. Yeah. We're really here to okay. help enable other, other researchers, um, you know, whether that comes to instrumentation or data access, that sort of thing, um, education and outreach for the public as well. Um, we really are trying to just enable um, better understanding of, of seismology. And so what is it that you do for IRIS now? 
Um, so, so like I said, I do some QA, QC, making sure that the data coming in is making sense. Um, we have stations all around the world. Uh, and I also work with not just stations on land, but stations also in the oceans. Um, sometimes we deploy seismometers that drop down to the ocean floor. And the data that comes back is uh, pretty weird sometimes. It's not the same as land data. So I try to help um, interpret that for, for other researchers. Um, but also, when I um, can convince people, I also go out into the field. Um, so I'm not just behind a computer all day. Uh, sometimes I get to go out in the field and actually help install stations. And that's what I did last summer uh, for about two months. Um, up in Alaska, actually. <laughs> so were you close close to home or, I mean, Alaska's pretty big. <laughs> it's pretty big. And the nice part about this is I was very far from home. These were areas that we were setting up stations that I'd never been to. And a lot of people in Alaska don't get to go to them because they're off the road system and you have to fly there, which is expensive. So, um, you know, these were areas you really needed a helicopter for. So it it wasn't something that just anyone can go, go and visit. Um, so yeah, that was pretty exciting work this summer. Um, I imagine that because, as listeners may know, I'm I'm pretty obsessed with bears. So I imagine <laughs> that um, you're going to have to worry about that a little bit. But don't you have problems up there with bears in terms of messing with the seismic? equipment and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of those um, <laughs> data QA, QC things that you don't normally hear about. Um, we do run into problems occasionally where um, bears or other animals too um, get curious about this uh, new materials that just landed into their habitat. And so they often will go up to it, check it out, sniff it, maybe chew on it a little. And Oftentimes, they'll just leave it alone. Uh, but every now and then, it um, they pull on it a little too hard. They think it's a toy. And um, our station might go down from that. That doesn't happen very often. But <laughs> it is one of those things you have to investigate and look at the data and see, you know, oh, does that look like footsteps? Not sure, you know. So it's kind of a fun part. <laughs> That's awesome. Like all this extra data. So that sh that just goes into your biology love, exactly. right? Exactly. So. Yeah. No, seismology <laughs> is a very interdisciplinary, you know, world. So <laughs> full <all>. circle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excellent. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in how the transition went for you uh, from doing your PhD where you're very focused on a, a specific research topic and you spend a lot of time working on it to working in an organization where your goal is to make research easier for your community. So not doing all of that research directly yourself all of the time. How did that transition go and what made you decide this is the path you want to take? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I can't speak for everybody who, who works at IRIS, but in, in my case, um, you know, I really enjoyed my focused research, but by the end of my PhD, I was a little burnt out as are most people by the end of their week. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we're both still in shock. So yes. <laughs> yes, I think we can all commiserate a little over that. Um, and so it was actually really refreshing to have this sort of open blank slate at Iris to, to start learning about completely new topics, you know, things I hadn't worked on before. 
and really going for, instead of a really focused approach, um, really broadening it, which is different than what would happen if I had gone on to do a postdoc. Um, so I found that to be a pretty interesting transition. It was, like you said, it's, it's very different. Um, but I was ready for that, especially at the end of my PhD. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think I think a lot of people get lost in the in the forest in terms of trying to make their science applicable to you know the broader public and that's a big thing we talk about in, in academia broader impacts and how does this matter to people. So I was also really excited to talk to you sort of about that as well because I think Iris does a good job at getting that message out both to other researchers and sort of the community a little bit. Exactly. And that's something I hadn't experienced much um, in my PhD, just just mainly because of where I was in Boston. Um, you know, if people in California have it kind of different, you know, the public knows about earthquakes, they talk about them very <laughs> yeah. often. And so it's a little different when you're when you're, say, doing a PhD in, in California, and the public is always interested in what you're doing versus, you know, somewhere where they don't have earthquakes, and they don't really care about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so one of the things we wanted to talk to you about while you're on here is the recent magnitude 7.9 that occurred south of the Kenai Peninsula on the, the 23rd of January. So it's it's pretty recent and pretty large and significant. You, know, you said that where you grew up was on a plate boundary, and so you had this interest in geophysics. Mm -hmm. uh, so what what happened with this event? What were some of the, the impacts from an earthquake that's a 7.9 that close to a population? Yeah, this was a really interesting earthquake. And, and like you said, you know, it was very large. And so I did wake up to texts from home, um, as I normally do when an earthquake happens, you know, my fr family and friends will, will text me just to ask, you know, what's going on. Um, <laughs> and usually, actually, they're quite good at telling me what's going on, you know, they'll describe the shaking and how the waves felt. And, you know, that's really helped me actually for especially determining how far away it was, how deep it was, that sort of thing. So uh, shout out to my family up there and Homer. Love you guys. <laughs> um, so yeah, this 7.9 though, um, you know, when I first saw it, the first second, I thought, oh no, this is bad. Because as most people did when they first saw that, they thought, you know, 7.9, that has to be on the plate boundary. That is a subduction zone earthquake. And, you know, not just um, being very close to home, you know, Homer's on that, on top of that plate boundary. Um, we also have to worry about uh, tsunamis when earthquakes occur on the subduction zone. So when I saw that, that's what I thought we were dealing with. And um, what was you know, very fortunate is that this wasn't a subduction zone earthquake. This earthquake actually occurred in the plate before it was subducted. And that would be, you know, a strike slip fault, oceanic strike slip fault. So exactly what I studied um, in school. And uh, this doesn't cause displacement of water like a subduction zone earthquake does. So so you don't have to worry as much about a large tsunami being triggered by it. So that was a big relief to see that. 
So you said that you would initially think that this is a subduction zone earthquake. And is that just because of the magnitude then? Because it was really big. So you would assume it was occurring along that plate boundary? Yeah, because we don't tend to get that many very large um, strike slip earthquakes. You know, it really taps out at about eight, magnitude eight. And those are not not very common. Um the closest event to this would be in 2012, there was an 8.6. Um, that was an oceanic strikes up earthquake, just like the one in Alaska. And, you know, that was the largest strikes up earthquake that's ever been recorded and was incredibly large and very complex, you know, rupturing multiple faults. And, you know, this Alaska one actually looks kind of similar to that. So, so these magnitude, you know, 7.9, uh, 8.6, these are large earthquakes and they can, in researching them, they could tell us a lot about how earthquakes behave in general, not just in, in the oceans. So you said that for a strike slip event, they sort of tapped out around an eight. Is that just because you have a, a certain set of seismogenic depths that you can rupture at. And if it strikes slip and that interface is roughly vertical, you have less area that can rupture versus something like a thrust? Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of just um, sort of an idea that you really can't sustain a rupture too long. Like, I mean, there are limits to how long a rupture can can be. Um, on subduction zones, that can be much, you know, wider and longer, we saw that with um, you know Japan, uh, the the nine point one there, um, or in Sumatra again, they had a you know nine point one that ruptured a thousand kilometers. Um, but for these strike slip events, they can't rupture as deep because they're going directly into the lithosphere, and there's a limit, like you said, on how deep those can rupture. Um, I also wanted to go back to Casey when you said that these oceanic strike slip earthquakes aren't going to create tsunamis because, you know, in a subduction zone, you're dragging that plate down and you get an earthquake and potentially it pings back up and you move a lot of water. And so you just don't do that and transform in these strike slip faults, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Water doesn't shear, you know, you can't um, displace water just by moving a plate underneath it. So, you know, the one way that you can get a little bit of displacement is that the seafloor is bumpy. So, so if you have um, sort of a, you know, non-smooth seafloor, then you might uh, push some water around and slosh it around a bit. Um, but in, in the most case, yeah, most cases, uh, transform faults cannot cause tsunamis, especially not on the same magnitude scale as, as a large uh, subduction zone earthquake. Right. So that like 1964 earthquake is the one I think most people probably think about in Alaska where there was a huge tsunami associated with that. And this guy had like four inches or something, I think was the Yeah, the I, I can't remember. There was a bit of concern because uh, one of the NOAA dart buoys that uh, is out there to record tsunamis and report back if if you know one had been recorded one of those had uh, a spike in the data that was not real it was not a real tsunami it was either caused by the shaking of the earthquake itself or some sort of um you know uh what are they called uh sorry <laughs> forgetting <laughs> 
uh, not a glitch, but uh, like a leveling. Uh, what are those called? Oh well. So there was these this buoy that was going off, and and it showed this spike in the data that would have been interpreted as a ten meter tsunami wave. And since none of the other buoys were showing a ten meter wave or anything close, you know that it was pretty obvious that this buoy was going rogue and doing something it wasn't supposed to. (laughs) Maybe some seagull or something was. Exactly. uh... (laughs) But it it was very concerning for people who were able to access that data, which the data is public. So so there was a bit of a rumor going around that there was actually a a very large tsunami from this. And that did concern people in Kodiak, especially. So, you know, that's that's something that, um, you know, the public outreach and being able to quickly respond to the public and get information can kind of help, um, you know, quell rumors like that. And I mean, that wasn't the only sort of thing about this particular event that was kind of confused. Because even now, when you try to look up this event, there's a lot of different magnitude estimates that you see, like all throughout these different media sources. Yeah, and I think that that might have been, I'm not sure if you guys were aware of this, but there was actually a power outage at the Alaska Earthquake Center. Um, This was unrelated to the earthquake. This happened um, before the magnitude 7.9 occurred. And so completely separate, but it took out the Alaska Earthquake Center for a good hour. Um, They were unable to access their data and, and, and analyze it and, and all of that and, and respond to the public. So um, I think that that may have something to do with some of the magnitude changes and, and the different messages that we're getting out to people um, to not have uh, that okay. steady source of knowledge um, at, at the Alaska Earthquake Center. And of course, like you get this huge earthquake and that's when your power's out. Yeah, it was a very unfortunate, <laughs> you know, coincidence, but it, it did yeah. show, you know, this is, uh, you know, maybe we need a backup power source up there, you know, generators and, and, you know, we need to have, have redundant systems. So that's, that's an important wake up call. Well, I mean, between that and the, the sensor ghost that happened on the buoy with also probably some pretty bad timing (laughs) for this event, it, it sort of shows in my mind the the need for very rigorous engineering procedures in a lot of this stuff. So, you know, if you're looking at a buoy and you have weird spikes of data in it every now and then, you're inclined to say, oh, it's just a little bit of a flaky sensor. It's fine. But with pathological timing like this, it can actually be a pretty big deal. Exactly. And, you know, having the data out there for for everyone to see and, and you know, and use in their own lives is is really good, I think a very good thing, but it also shows the need for for experts, you know, expert opinions to be released along with that data. You know, I think that that public outreach side of science is is why, you know, having that both public data as well as, you know, the public um, expertise to to back it up. And so another misconception that it accompanies all large earthquakes, but uh, since this one, there were multiple magnitudes and everything else floating around. It's also that the earthquake occurs at a point on a map. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. Uh, 
you know, we, we locate an epicenter or a hypocenter, but it's actually a pretty large area that ruptures depending on the earthquake size. So what what sort of rupture size are we looking at? This sure, yeah. And and this earthquake, like I said, it it's interesting. It We're still looking into it. And when I say we, I just mean seismologists in general. Um, but because it was so large and it was a strike slip, and we already talked about how there's a limit to how deep those can rupture, um, it's very likely that this earthquake ruptured on multiple faults. And that complicates things. When we start talking about multiple faults and complex rupture, it makes it even harder to unravel what the earthquake was doing from seismograms alone. And that's what we had to do in this case. We, in this case, we have an earthquake that occurred out in the ocean, far from land, and we're using our sensors on land to determine what happened. So, you know, we have some really clever ways of, of pulling out different parameters, like the earthquake depth, the, the direction it ruptured, but we're limited when things get too complicated. Um, so I would say that an earthquake of this size uh, probably ruptured about a, a fault of at least 200 kilometers in length. And uh, I was told to have a nice, relevant, um, real-world example of that length. So 200 kilometers is about the distance as the crow flies from Seattle to Portland. So pretty significant length of a rupture. So with something that big, how long does that take? That's huge. Yeah, and I'm sure to people in Kodiak and my family in Homer, it felt like it took forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you've never felt an earthquake, you know, time really does slow. You think that it lasted forever. You think it's never going to end. And luckily, we have seismometers to tell us exactly how long it was, which was about, you know, 50 seconds or about a minute of, of rupture itself. And by the time those waves made it to to land where where people were feeling this shaking, you know, that extended out for several minutes of, of shaking. So it, it was quite quite a good rumble for everybody up there. Yeah, that's really intense. Mm-hmm. And so what exactly, I don't know how well we can constrain really the, the source time function of this earthquake. Was this a pretty standard, it starts rupturing and then just keeps going? Or in that source time function, do you start to see maybe some of these sub-faults and sub-events that are happening? Yeah. So I, I haven't done this uh, this analysis myself, but looking at what's publicly available from the USGS and Gavin Hayes over at the USGS, um, their finite fault results that they've looked at um, have already a kind of complicated rupture of several sort of like two sub events, basically, like the earthquake started rupturing in kind of a patch, and then it ruptured again, like sort of dual, dual faults. And that that could be two different faults rupturing, that could be two different patches on the same fault rupturing. Um, And so we can look at that and, and sort of try to analyze that we can also look at the aftershocks, because an earthquake of this size, has numerous small earthquakes following it. 
And aftershocks tend to happen, you know, either on or around the fault that ruptured in the main shock. So it kind of gives us an outline of where we would expect the larger rupture to occur. Uh, the problem is, is these once again are occurring offshore. So it's a bit of a mess to detangle all of those. And the folks at Alaska Earthquake Center are doing a really good job of that. So they've located over 150 earthquakes uh, in the days following this, like every day. So it's hundreds of earthquakes they're locating, and it sort of shows a big area where faults could have ruptured. So I'm not sure if we're going to know exactly what happened with this earthquake. It might take a lot of analysis, and we might not know exactly where where that rupture did occur by the end of it. Oh, sounds like about five good PhD theses, at least. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> So the transportable ray is currently in Alaska. Is that a, a big deal when an event like this happens or does such a large event so close and still offshore, does that not really bias a lot? Well, that would probably be, you know, after, after I woke up and I saw the text from my family and I thought, oh my gosh, this was the big event. You know, there was a tsunami. I hope everyone's okay. After I figured out that, that, that they were all fine, and everyone was safe. The next thing I thought of was, oh my gosh, this is going to look amazing on the Alaska TA. <laughs> so the Alaska TA, it's the transportable array, as you said, it's, it's 280 seismic stations evenly spaced in sort of a nice grid pattern across the whole state of Alaska and also into Western Canada. And these stations are reporting their data in real time. So we don't have to go out to the station to get it. They report back to us. And so in seeing this data from this earthquake, you can actually just see the waves moving out from their earthquake, you know, epicenter and, and going out like, you know, ripples on a pond. It, it's beautiful, uh, especially to a seismologist, but to anybody, it just makes earthquakes seem much more understandable, I think, to have resolution of, you know, data resolution of this quality. Well, that's going to really help too in this complicated tectonic setting, I would think, to have this big one up there and not really knowing exactly what's happening, I, how fortuitous that the TA was there, right? I think so. And I mean, we were pretty sure we were, we were going to capture a large earthquake, they do happen fairly often in Alaska, um, not just the ongoing seismicity, but we also have quite a lot of large events. But we weren't sure exactly where it would happen or you know, if it would be damaging or anything. And so this is almost one of the best case scenarios because it was a large earthquake, but it didn't cause you know, a large amount of damage. It didn't harm people. And so it just showed up beautifully on the stations and really showed why we need to have stations up here to record all these events. Yeah, so I'm uh, seeing some of the data sets that have come from the TA and different earthquakes. It's always amazing the animations that you all at Iris produce from these and just all the cool things that people can do with these data. As, as you said, you don't often get sub wavelength <laughs> sampling of <laughs> some of these 
higher frequency components. Uh, so sort of transitioning to a more general question, not necessarily about the earthquake, but since you deal with computers and instrumentation all of the time, what's some of the technology that you're most excited about right now? Well, I don't mean to just talk about the TA, but one of the, <laughs> the most interesting things about our project <laughs> is that we've co-located a lot of sensors that are not just seismic sensors at these stations. So along with the seismic uh, seismometer that we've installed you know, into the earth, we also have hooked up to the same station, we also have a, a meteorological sensor. So we have weather data at all of these points, or nearly all of them, all the ones that are, are quite far out and remote sites, we've added these weather sensors. So having that and having the seismic sensor, and then we also have infrasound sensors and strong motion sensors, all at the same sites. What's interesting is that when you get those kinds of data streams that are co-located, you never know exactly what you're going to find. You know, releasing this data out to researchers has been really exciting because people will analyze it and find things that we weren't aware of, you know, signals that we didn't think we were recording. And I think that's the most exciting thing. So it's really about using technology we've had, but having it in a really large scale and having it co-located in having it open so that researchers everywhere can have access to it. That's probably what I'm most excited about. Man, Casey, as many people know who listen, you know, I'm very anti-technology and I make fun of John all the time, but that was so eloquently <laughs> stated about like using all these existing technologies in new ways. That was beautiful. I loved it so much. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, besides the technology, one thing that I always think is fun to ask too is what is like the one thing you couldn't live without? Like, what could you not do your job without? And I mean, it could be technology. That's generally what we were talking about. Or it could be, you know, coffee, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd probably go pretty low tech there and just say Wi-Fi and <laughs> Google. Yes, as a computer scientist, I'd say that Wi-Fi and Google are the essential <laughs> essential needs of any researcher. Um, anything you need to know is at your fingertips if you have those two. Um, if I need to remember how to write an if statement in Python or MATLAB, that's where I go to. So, you know, that would definitely be pretty low tech, but it's the technology I can't do without. That's awesome. That's why I think pretty early on, we had a Google Foo show about how to, you know, how to game Google and figure out how to use it. Because I know there's a lot of students who, they don't even know how to do that. And I, I keep saying like, man, what did you guys do back in the day? Like Google does everything. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing for research as well. Google Scholar is also another uh, wonderful. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> And, I, so I should say, too, that I did apply to Google when I was oh. a computer scientist. <laughs> um, I, I got an interview, um, but it was definitely nice. for a job I don't think I was qualified to do because it was a really, <laughs> really hard interview. Um, oh, man. <laughs> so that might have had a little something to do with why I ended up going in a different direction. <laughs> well, thank goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank goodness for everybody. <laughs> 
you know, I've heard several people talk about coming out of their Google interviews and just their brains are mush at the end of it. <laughs> it. It sounds really pretty brutal, even if it's a job that is the exact right job for you. It sounds like they take you to the edge and then just keep pushing like a qualifying exam. <laughs> exactly. I, I think it was really good um, to have that experience before grad school because it was something I could you know, go back to and say, well, at least it wasn't as bad as that interview. <laughs> <laughs> so as a computer science person, uh, I'm curious if there are any kind of workflow type things that you think people might find interesting. I know a lot of computer scientists have everything automated, including you know, crazy terminal prompts and other <laughs> things, but it, it, it could be something low tech as well. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I feel like <laughs> you know, moving into the geosciences, I've lost a lot of the good habits that I should have as a programmer. <laughs> I fail to comment in my code often, and <gasps> I do not automate everything. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so I suppose Me it's more of a confession. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> John's got to put himself together. So we're going to have to pause here for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I would say one thing, though, that I do love is maps. And I use the generic mapping tools for all of them. And that was something I'd never used before. And I love it. I find it incredibly amazing that you can make one really long, complicated, indecipherable line of code and run it. And it'll produce a beautiful map with layers and colors and scales and everything. So that would be my one thing that as a workflow, I suppose it's a little low tech, but it's something that I love to do for new earthquakes that, that occur. Yeah, GMT is a very, very powerful, but very cryptic. <laughs> it has a harsh learning curve, for sure. <laughs> harsh learning curve, I love it. <laughs> I, and I do wish they had a better manual online because just like the code that I write, it ends up being pretty indecipherable, even on Google. Google's not much help. But if you get one good script, I just keep going back to the same script and just edit from there. So just try to ask someone for a good one. And you can ask me for one, too. I'll, I'll put it on my website <laughs> so that everyone has a starting point. <laughs> well, and GMT is nice. getting Python bindings. Oh, exciting. I didn't know. Yes, there is. There is a postdoc that that is their postdoc is Python Ooh. bindings for GMT. Excellent. Yeah, actually, we we should talk to him on the show. Uh, yeah, how about <laughs> how about next week? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I'll just sit here during that show. Okay, so <laughs> but cool. Well, so, Casey, is there anything else you'd just like to add? Things that you feel like we we missed, or anything that you would like to share with folks? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's been really nice to to talk about this. You know, sometimes I will sit in my office and I don't get to talk to too many seismologists. So <laughs> it is enjoyable to talk earthquakes with you guys. <laughs> Great. So I guess that means it's time to transition on over to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Stereo cowbells. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love bringing that thing. That's the best. It's been a while. <laughs> yes. 
Well, it's been since uh, your baby. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I luckily I was teaching class and I just came from class straight to my office. And so I'm recording this at work and there's my cowbell that was welded for me. So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so Casey, you picked this fun paper of do large magnitude greater than or equal to eight global earthquakes occur on preferred days of the calendar year or lunar cycle. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this paper is really good, actually. And that's a really interesting uh, question in general. This sounds like all that kind of voodoo pseudoscience that people are like, tornadoes don't cross rivers and stuff mm -hmm. like that, right? Yeah, so. I think it's a question that comes up a lot. Um, I'll say that in a meeting with some pretty high up people, um, I did get a question about the eclipse and whether or not we saw a spike in earthquakes related to the eclipse. And no, no there wasn't. <laughs> and nor did we expect there to be one. But it's a question people ask fairly regularly. So I, I thought it was good to have an update to this um, by Susan Huff. So. Oh, that's fantastic. And as people listen, know, like John and I like to say, you know, what, what do we like about papers? And like the, I think it's the BMJ, right? That has the really yeah. great abstract format. So they say, you know, like within the abstract, it's like, why do I care about this essentially? <laughs> and it's like a couple sentence answers. I'm like, this is even better, but this abstract really takes the cake. Yeah. Sue did a great job with this. Uh, the abstract <laughs> is one word. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really see the, the need for a paper after reading that abstract, but, but okay, there's some stuff to back this up. That's fine. <laughs> yes, I think well, it was a just, good summary of, of the results for, <laughs> for people who don't want to read into the entire paper, but the rest of the paper can back up that statement. <laughs> that's fantastic um so the next time you have to tell someone no casey you should just cite you know no uh, 2000 <laughs> we can all do it <laughs> exactly totally do it and this is one of the few srl papers i think that has had a life hacker article written about it just oh, because seriously? of the abstract yes <laughs> Oh, this is a record-breaking paper because it is the shortest abstract that has been noted in a published article, um, breaking the previous record by one letter from the previous abstract was yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. This one would have been much more interesting, I will say, if the answer was the abstract was yes, but you know. Only for pseudoscience reasons. <laughs> well, and so in the analysis here, she went back and pulled a catalog, tried to discard uh, events that were dependent on each other, so occurred within 10 days of each other, and then made some plots of the Julian day of the year and the count of earthquakes, and did some basic statistical analysis on it here, saying, well, it looks like if you just look at a plot of Julian day and magnitude it looks like there might be something to this idea that there's a, a cyclic nature to this. But once you actually make randomized catalogs and take some random subsets and do the same analysis, you see that it's just coincidence. Yeah, because it really does. Like that graph does look a little bit cyclical, I'm going to say. Yeah. And, and, and I thought that the, was... 
Oh, and there's also the excellent point of, well, if it occurs, more earthquakes occur during the first quarter than they should occur during the third or, you know, some of these non-symmetric things that are also right. seen saying, well, this is just chance. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was interesting, which I'm going to read this paper. Maybe we'll have it on as another fun paper because, you know, she says in here, however, apparent clustering and anti-clustering is notoriously common in random data <laughs> and then has a, has a reference for that. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a psychological thing, too, because as humans, we sort of want to see patterns and we try to see patterns, even in data that doesn't have a pattern. And you see that a lot with earthquakes, you know, people will say, oh, man, there's so many more earthquakes this year. And it's really just because there was one earthquake and then they saw another headline or they're more aware of the headlines with earthquakes in them after an earthquake. So. So I think as humans, we're very right. good at seeing patterns, even if they aren't actually mm -hmm. there. <laughs> Absolutely. And this was, uh, there's some very interesting statistical analyses to, to say, you know, no, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't true. I know it looks like it. And there's some pretty graphs that show that. Mm -hmm. Well, well, and you know, they are, Sue says in here, there are 204 events that were actually in the catalog that she considered, which is not a huge sample size when you're looking at 365 days, uh, having only 204 events. But yeah. interestingly enough, uh, no leap year accounting was done because there were no large earthquakes on February 29th. <laughs> cyclical? That's cyclical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's a pattern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, this was a, a really great way to illustrate. And I thought having all of these different randomly drawn catalogs plotted as sort of these, uh, in meteorology, I guess they would probably call them ensemble model plots that be analogous. Do you think Shannon? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking when I was reading it for sure. Well, definitely looking at them. I thought this looks like a spaghetti plot from a sure does. temperature output <laughs> <of a> model. <laughs> and, and I mean, the point is it is spaghetti. So there you go. No, uh, no correlations. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's really important, too, because, you know, this is a question, like I said, that people ask, you know, that's um, kind of seems obvious, I suppose, to a seismologist that, you know, no, it's not necessarily what's going to cause earthquakes. But to someone who doesn't have that background, you know, you think the moon, there's earth, you know, the tides with the oceans and then you know there actually are earth tides as well the pull of the moon on the earth so you know maybe that there is something to this and and i think it's important to have you know actual citable resources to point to so that people can understand this and understand also yep. that seismologists do take it seriously so you know i do like to see that Well, and there's some analysis in here too saying, well, let's say that we just don't have enough data to really show that there is a correlation mm -hmm. here. That would only give us a couple of percent <laughs> of predictive power, which is useless. <sighs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the age old yeah. question, always about predicting earthquakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So no, I thought this was a, a great paper and there are definitely some things in the references that we need to go look at for potential future fund papers. Mm -hmm. uh, as Shannon said, there's yep. also an article, uh, will the March 19th supermoon trigger natural disasters? <laughs> uh, oh, <interesting>. from <laughs> that sounds like it could be 
a fascinating. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, well, Casey, so thanks for uh, suggesting this fun paper. And uh, this is something that I think we've probably answered preemptively some listener questions <laughs> on <laughs> by using this. So is there a way that if folks wanted to find out a little bit more about your research or get a hold of you, how would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, sure. Probably through Twitter would be the easiest. So it's just uh, Casey Adderhold. And I'm sure there'll be a spelling of my name out there somewhere, but it's K-A-S-E-Y-A-D-E-R-H-O-L-D. And uh, yeah, that would probably be the best way to get a hold of me. Great. And Shannon, how can folks get a hold of the show with their own fun papers or feedback and suggestions? Uh, well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And we are also on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And swing by our Slack chat room, uh, Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. And we're now also on Patreon. So if you enjoy the show and would like to support us to help us send microphones to guests like Casey, uh, there will be a link for that in the show notes as well. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or 